Welcome to the Let's Develop podcast, a forum where we explore how to transform ourselves and the world around us through the art and science of performance and development. In each episode, we interview people from across Spaceship Earth who actively co-create preferred futures for themselves and the world around them by enacting development-driven approaches to social change. Hello, y'alls, y'allsettes, and y'allses. Today we had the good fortune of speaking with Mark Hopkins. Mark is the artistic director of Swallow a Bicycle Theater, which generates productive discomfort through art making. He's also an associate with Human Venture Leadership, which seeks to build our collective capacities to reduce ignorance, error, waste, suffering, and injustice. Big and mighty goals, very achievable. It was a lovely conversation. Mark is remarkable. I'm, I'm sorry for the pun there, but remarkable in the sense that he, he's able to combine various passions and various projects into this ongoing reflection about what's important and how do we figure things out together. His answer to the last question I asked him kind of blew my mind. Mark Hopkins, everyone. Join us. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Mark Hopkins. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Hey, likewise. Thanks. Like I was saying to you offline, you're one of the first people outside of the developmental community uh, that I'm speaking with. So this is this is a learning opportunity for me. Um, and it's also really cool because you're a Calgarian. <laughs> I am born and raised. Well, you're one of the, so for people that don't know, okay, I'm, I'm an adopted uh, Calgarian in the sense of like I moved here from Toronto, but there, there are not too many Calgarians from Calgary, Cal, like born and raised in Calgary and living in Calgary. Calgary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't know the stats. I mean, I imagine there has to be lots and lots of us, but Calgary is, has like over the past several decades been a place that people come to. So I think. Yes the chances of meeting someone from elsewhere is quite high here. Well, and also I, I feel like in, in Calgary, this is my gut sense, um, is for people that move here, it's often that they find other people that move here. Mm. And for folks that grew up here, it's often that they kind of like, you know, um, contain the communities in which they grew up, contain the, um, the circles of friends, right? Um, in terms of social mobility, I would say that, um, people here like the people who they know for a while. Does that, mm. does that resonate with you at all? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I think it's true of living in any place where uh, I have the mixed fortune of, yeah, having, uh, I I'm still swimming in the same pool that I have been swimming in for a long time. And so uh, I have access to the networks that existed in my childhood. I have access to the networks that existed in high school, university, you know, because I never left. And so, mm. yeah, uh, I've got uh, a great facility in sort of the, the social networks of Calgary, at least some of them. But that can also be super limiting, right? Because like if I grew up in a super in a narrow chunk of Calgary, which, of course, I did, uh, unless I'm unless I treat my own city as if I'm a tourist in a certain sense, I'm always going to stay within that that little silo. Mm. I like I like that idea. How would it look like to treat your own city as a tourist? I feel like I can learn from you on that. 
<laughs> but uh, to continue learning, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about your work and what you do. Well, sure. Um, I do a bunch of stuff. Uh, I for about uh, well, I'm the artistic director of Swallow a Bicycle Theater. Uh, which is an indie theater company that we started here in Calgary about 12 years ago. Um, and that's sort of uh, one of my core engagements that has a bunch of stuff circling around it. But then I'm also um, in, I'm an associate with a community called Human Venture Leadership uh, that also is based here in Calgary, uh, mm-hmm. which is not a theater organization strictly or in really any sense. Uh, it's really about trying to identify the causal patterns of why humans behave the way we do, why cultures develop the way we do, and honestly, to try to help us stop making the same stupid mistakes over and over again. And mm-hmm. then I do a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's an example of like a recent project you've taken up? Oh, in, terms of, in terms of the other stuff that you're talking about. <laughs> the other stuff. Uh, well, um, I have the good fortune right now, I'm a fellow with the Energy Futures Lab here in Calgary, which is a bit of a uh, feels like a bit of a sidestep from my usual gigs. Uh, the Energy Futures Lab is uh, a group um, that is trying to uh, help design the energy futures that the like the energy systems that the future requires of us uh, using sort of Alberta's current positioning to do so. Uh, and as they were doing that, they were working with like a lot of engineers and environmentalists, scientists, uh, policymakers, um, you know, the various folks that have inputs at various parts of the energy system. Um, and then they decided it would be a good idea to have some artists involved uh, because recognizing that that to transform energy systems or any, any system can't just be technical fixes, can't just be like technological innovation, needs to also be cultural shifts. And so we mm-hmm. were... Uh, on sort of a hunch on their part that artists would um, be able to play some role in in assessing or shifting culture, which he will see. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, often we just did a retreat. Um, where was that? That was in uh, Kananaskis, I guess. Uh, we end up doing retreats in different parts of the province to to get it sense of different uh, little nodes of the energy system. And um, uh, and I also had a chance to help facilitate a role-playing game with them called the Newtonian Shift. Ooh, uh, relevant. Of, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which they sort of co-designed with some folks in Europe. Uh, and it, it simulates uh, a energy system in transition. So uh, a, f- a fake country called Newtonia that uh, is facing the pressures of environmental catastrophe and so on that um, that has to make a shift, but you have all of the embedded uh, sort of path dependencies of all its former energy systems. So I had the wonderful chance to act as the government in that game and uh, and see it unfold. Cool. So, so Mark, for those of us who are not in Calgary, why is an energy futures lab relevant to our context? <laughs> uh... Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, looking at energy futures is relevant to all contexts in a certain sense because right, right. Uh, the problems that we're facing are, like the biggest problems we're facing are not localized. The biggest problems we're facing are global. Um, 
And uh, but I think for an energy futures lab to be happening in Alberta is, um, you know, has particular relevance in that a I mean we're a petro state. Um, we have uh, we follow all the the same patterns as other petro states across history and across the world, uh, where we've been uh, both have the great benefit of having abundant natural resources in the form of oil and gas, uh, but then all of the uh, environmental, social, economic challenges that uh, are accompanied with sort of uh, dependence on a, a single set of resources. So, um, so yeah, like Alberta has been uh, for many, many years sort of the one of the uh, economic hearts and the uh, like energy system hearts of Canada, uh, but we've also been some of the the greatest contributors to say climate change or uh, or other ecological challenges that we're facing. So I think there's a certain urgency uh, from lots of different angles for folks in Alberta to be thinking about the the future of energy. And it frankly, like I'm not a content expert. Like I'm hanging mm -hmm. out with folks that are looking at the clean burning of methane and how to convert abandoned oil well sites into geothermal energy sources. And I'm like, cool, I don't know any of that. But mm. all of all of us are engaged in energy systems and all of us in Alberta in particular are engaged in like oil and gas systems. So well one thing that I'm just really seeing and tell me if I'm wrong is that you as a person have to be pretty open and, and agile not agile, but adaptive to be able to play in a new space like that. Talking about you know, converting oil wells into geothermal sources of energy, right? Um, and so w w with that openness and flexibility in mind, uh, l let's get to know some of the work that Swallow Bicycle Theater does, right? Um, what was your main motivation in, in creating an indie theater company here in Calgary? <laughs> um, well, I didn't start in the theater. I... Uh... Um, took a degree in English and creative writing, focusing on like poetry and short fiction with some playwriting in there. Um, I went to the University of Calgary uh, and I actually discovered uh, very quickly in my English degree, uh, I had some friends from high school that uh, went into drama and uh, they had better parties. Uh, <laughs> Call and, like it is. <laughs> so I ended up going to a lot of the drama parties, ended up meeting a lot of the drama kids, uh, got sort of slowly pulled into, I took a couple acting classes my last year. And then um, through utter happenstance, I got hired right out of university by a local magazine that unfortunately uh, got canceled recently, but called Swerve, which was sort of an arts and culture magazine. And they hired me again, right out of school as the regular theater writer. So I, uh, as I was working for, you know, like poetry festivals and magazines, I was also meeting all of these wonderful theater artists. And uh, and then I uh, ran across this company called Bubonic Tourist, which also doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but they did like the weird stuff. They uh, were very unconventional, experimental, outside the box, uh, doing interdisciplinary wild experiments in strange venues and i well, saw like, so, like like what they did uh, uh, a bunch of different stuff one of the i don't remember what who the artists were or what the performance was but it was in a theater in a church basement um i remember distinctly seeing this uh duo of performers uh who were like mostly naked dancing around and like uh piercing themselves with 
uh, presumably sterilized needles, and then sort of blood would stream down their bodies, and they would sort of paint with that. Uh, and I'm like, what the hell is happening? Like, is this even allowed? Uh <laughs> But then they also they did uh, a festival called Mutton Busting. Uh, they did a sort of a little festival event called Pipe, which was performance in peculiar environments, which a lot of performances took place in a parking garage. And yeah, it just sort of like it wildly expanded what I saw as being possible in the arts. And so, uh, so when that company folded um, and they stopped producing their their work in their festival, uh, I had. Through them, met this guy who named Charles Netto, who uh, had just moved down from Edmonton, and he approached me and he was like, "Hey, I think I want to start a theater company, and I think you should do it with me." And I was like, "That seems like a reasonable plan." So we did. <laughs> and how old were you then? Oh, frig! Uh, it would have been like twenty, twenty-three, I think. Mm-hmm. So early twenties. Just hired by Swerve well, a little while ago, right? And um, here's this opportunity to start a theater company. It's <laughs> yeah. incredible. Like, uh, there's got to be this like drive for novel, not not novelty, but like uh, playfulness or something there, right? Um, yeah, let's go for it. Let's 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 see what it's like, right? And and to me, uh, if if we take a look at uh, human venture leadership, is that is that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I might be wrong, but it feels to me like there's like a level of, oh, I don't want to like be hated for this, for saying it, but (laughs) for lack of better words, there's like a level of conservatism that comes with leadership. There's like a, um, uh, like a desire for, uh, organizing, right? Um, I don't know if that's conservatism, so I'm going to self-correct just in case, (laughs) but, uh, um, uh, this capacity to uh, read the world around you and to invite people into a shared vision to co-create community, right? There's a, there's a responsibility and onus on um, uh, the part of the leader. Um, maybe I'm thinking it from like good morals here, but um, you know, we, we've seen examples of leaders who don't do this, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, h- how did, how did, this spontaneity and, and artfulness and, and, and um, yearning for just different shit to play with coincide with this interest in leadership. And in particular, uh, this form of leadership that is uh, human venture leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what we do at Human Venture Leadership is uh, we're working within a new field called human learning ecology. And... Um, and so when we're thinking about like uh, human phenomena like leadership, uh, what we're trying to do is um, understand something about the universal quality of leadership. So uh, so in all of its various forms expressed across cultures, acro- across disciplines and fields, what are the, the common elements of leadership and how would we come to understand it? And uh, so the way we define leadership within a human venture context is uh, the the capacity to activate something in people that shows them what to do and how to do it, um, which is like, yeah, that's 
hopefully broad enough to encompass broad enough and specific enough to encompass sort of uh, whether it's managerial leadership or uh, you know all of those different leadership styles that you see in in um, in corporate uh, leadership seminars and that kind of thing. But the the utility in trying to define it at a like uh, a universal level is uh, that it it helps to be like, oh, okay, uh, if I thought of leaders as these, yeah, as you were kind of pointing towards uh, conservative, inflexible, managerial, uh, you know, firm white dude sort of like head, head of the hierarchy uh, entity, but then you see what looks like leadership in another context that doesn't like look the same as that, uh, you might be like, oh, that's not leadership, that's something else, when in fact, if leadership is merely sort of saying, hey, here's what we should do and here's how we should do it and why don't you come along with me, that can actually take a whole lot of different forms, which is a long way around to to what you asked around how I sort of found myself um, exploring these concepts, which was, uh, you know, probably like eight years into um, running or yeah, like eight, six, eight, whatever. A number of years into running Swallow Bicycle Theater, I had also been working... I'd run this thing called We Should Know Each Other, which was a community bridging initiative that I ran for a bunch of years that um, that was quite successful, and I became fairly well-known within Calgary, and I was also working for really prominent international arts festivals, uh, but I was getting really burned out and... Um, and eventually quit my job at the festival and went off to India for a month and and I came back uh, still running Swallow Bicycle, but it wasn't paying the bills. And uh, I was sort of like, what am I doing with my life right now? And I sort of had this sense that there's a lot of shit wrong with the world. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to be better. I have some capacities, like I have a reputation, mm -hmm. I have networks, I have um, some skills like I want to use all of that to make a difference in the world, but I don't know what difference to make or how to even start to assess that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was how I came across what was then called Leadership Calgary, which was sort of the intro program for human venture leadership. And that's how I stumbled into uh, what has been probably one of the most important engagements of my life. Mm. So taking one step <laughs> back to talk about the trip to India for a second. Sure. I mean, to me, to me, the, you know, there's a, there's an assumed storyline there, right? So feeling burnt out, you make a decision to go to India. Mm -hmm. How does one make a decision to go, to go to India for a month? How does that happen? Like what, what was going on in your mind? Um, I hadn't like, I'm born and raised in Calgary as we started this uh, conversation and, um, frankly, hadn't spent a lot of time elsewhere. Uh, I had lived in Paris for three months when I was, 18 if you're 19 there um and i'd been to a handful of other places but uh never anywhere in asia southeast asia um and really barely i'd been to ecuador as a kid but aside from that nowhere where i didn't speak the language or where i didn't already have existing networks and so um so as I was sort of feeling like I was in this rut, I really was craving, like, how do I get outside of everything I know? How do I uh, mm. totally dislocate from from the experiences that I've had to this point? And uh, India was 
just one of many uh, possible. Like I thought of going to Iceland. I thought of going to uh, various other places in the world. And then, um, uh, to be honest, I'm a vegetarian, and uh, it just seemed like it would be easier to navigate India than some mm-hmm. other places. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that was one of the the saving grace, the 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 directed the reasons I went to India. Uh, but yeah, then I showed up and I had like I had booked a flight into New Delhi and out of New Delhi uh, with a month in between and didn't have a really a plan in the middle and uh, just sort of fumbled my way through that month. Mm. What, what were some insights you had in India? And, and the reason that I'm so curious about this trip is because it, it feels like one of those making of Mark experiences. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like here's a person who grew up in Calgary, just pushing through life, uh, playful, uh, excited, and energetic, um, kind of realizing that things need to change, goes off to a different place. What happens? You know, that that's kind of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a very common narrative, like, uh, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, white person from the West uh, runs into a challenge in their life and goes to India to find truth. And, uh, and like, I am slightly ashamed to fall into that same trope, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but I think a, a few really important things came out of that trip. Like one was uh, a re like early in the trip, uh, a really keen awareness of how embedded we are in systems that are beyond our control. Um, so I show up. I'm a white dude from Canada who doesn't speak anything. I don't speak Hindi. I don't speak any of the local languages. Um, and uh, and there's a whole system in place for people like me, you know, like right from the airport when it's arrival, you, I got shuttled into this hotel and then the people at the hotel are connected to the drivers and like there's this whole tourist bubble that is mm-hmm. like the whole economies set up uh, to, to take advantage, like not take advantage, but well, kind of like recognize that, hey, there are these wealthy individuals coming from this place who don't know anything. We can make a living off them. Um, and, uh, so I sort of ended up in this whirlpool of, of, yeah, the India tourist industry, uh, which was very difficult to even like, it was, I think, deliberately disorienting. And, uh, and, uh, so I ended up just being like, I have to get out of New Delhi because it was, uh, it was chaotic and and very confusing. And, um, Mm -hmm. So I ended up doing specifically what I said I wasn't going to do as this like white wealthy tourist. I ended up hiring a private driver to take me through the Golden Triangle, which is totally what people like me do <laughs> in India. And I was kind of miserable, like um, as we were going to all these different like gorgeous forts and uh, religious sites and you know uh, Taj Mahal and so on, like. That was all. I learned a ton. I learned a ton about the history of the region, and and uh, but it was incredibly lonely and um, and superficial. I found, uh, and I was like, okay, I can't. My month can't be spent this way. So I thought about like, what would I be doing if I was visiting like Toronto or New York? Uh, oh, I would try to find people to talk to. I would try to find like uh, so. I just realized that like I had been ignoring most of like the life lessons I would apply to to traveling in the West where I would 
And basic thing, I just started couch surfing. Like I literally went on to like couchsurfing.com and when mm-hmm. I got to uh, Mumbai and Bangalore, I ended up staying with folks who actually live there. Mm-hmm. And I ended up reaching out to theater artists uh, who were working in these different cities. And they were all so, of course, so willing to meet with me and to compare our theater practices. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of my favorite uh stories from that was I I was reading on the plane on the way over um, oh it's a book by a Globe and Mail journalist uh, about rural to urban migration around the world I'm totally blanking on the name right now Um, but anyway I finished the book a whole bunch of it was set in Mumbai and I was going to Mumbai and I flipped to the back of the book and and the author had like credited the uh, translator he had worked with while he Mm -hmm. was going the slums of Mumbai and I'm like oh I wonder if she is online. So I Googled her like translator for hire website, yeah. uh, dropped her a line and said like, Hey, I just read this book. I really liked it. Can we meet? Uh, and not only did she get back to me and say, yes, she's also like, I also worked on this other book. That's about the slum around the Mumbai airport. You could read that. And she also is this incredible, she's the editor of a weekly women's insert in one of uh, Mumbai's biggest uh, newspapers. And, um, mm. And so I go, I'm going to meet with her, and I'm kind of expecting, like, this badass feminist, like, I don't know, tattooed, uh, uh, sort of my image of who would be the person doing these radical things, and uh, showed up, and she's kind of this middle-aged mom. Uh, She uh, buys me lunch, and we have a nice chat, and she's worried about her kids playing too many video games, and, (laughs) and, and yeah, it was it was helpful on so many levels to recognize, Oh, no matter where I am in the world, people are willing to like engage and, um, and I can learn from these people, uh, in similar ways that I would in, in Canada, just because mm-hmm. I'm in India doesn't mean that like they're a different species, you know? Uh, and that, but also my cultural context leads me to make certain assumptions that are simply not true. <laughs> and, uh, and meeting with her and with other folks in these different cities was a really helpful way of, of, uh, like removing some of the illusions I had from being born in the position and the locality that I was. Neat. Well, thank you. Thank you for, <laughs> for flushing out that, that experience in, uh, in India. So fast forward a little bit, you come back to Calgary, swallow bicycle theaters, not paying the bills. You realize you have this, I mean, probably ongoing insight around like, you know, I, I have these two arms. I, you know, I, I, I have this mind, I have these skill sets. What do I do? And, uh, leadership Calgary came about, right? Mm. Um, what was that process like, and and how are you involved now? Yeah, so uh, Leadership Calgary was the introductory program to uh, this this field of of human learning ecology. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. I uh, like pe- lots of people told me that, but I didn't know what those words meant. And what well, well, what, uh, what do those words mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, human learning ecology is uh, a new field. It has been initiated by um, my mentor and the guy who sort of started up the human venture learning community. His name is Ken Lowe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way he, he's been sort of studying humans for the past 50 or 60 years um, in a similar way to the way that Jane Goodall and others studied chimpanzees, uh, trying to... You know, it, uh, Jane Goodall had is a brilliant human, uh, and and there was many reasons she was able to accomplish what she did. But part of it was that she wasn't sort of deeply ingrained in the uh, 
um, and the dominant thinking of the scientific community at the time uh, and was able to just sort of look at how the situation actually is. How do chimpanzees actually behave? Uh, mm. And that's sort of the approach that Ken has taken as well. It's like, okay, there's all of these different theories of human development, all of these different understandings of, uh, of how, who we are, how we came to be, how we make sense of the world. How how do we behave in the world? <laughs> like, what is the actual um, the actual situation we're in? And uh, mm-hmm. we just started trying to map that out. And what that has turned into is this field called human learning ecology, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah, even if you think about those words, like the ecology of human learning, the various inputs, uh, the causal structures, the the way that we have come to be, uh, and the way we we continue to learn into the future is sort of uh, what that field is, is exploring. Mm. Um, and so when I came into leadership Calgary, uh, you know, like fairly intelligent, whatever uh, experienced person in the world, but I hadn't really thought about these dynamics in this way. Uh, so the introductory program is really intentional around uh, trying to show like, uh, hey, look, uh, this is the big picture situation of humanity. And so it very deliberately goes back to our earliest, like our species history to understand uh, how we developed into hunter-gatherers, how we moved into agricultural societies, how that moved into like the civilizational structures that we have right now, and um, and outlining uh, the... All like learning systems that allowed all that to happen or pushed all that to happen, but then also the ways it goes real, real wrong uh, mm. in in predictable ways, but ways that uh, that are really devastating. Um, so, so what's an example of a um, a learning cycle? Is that what you called it? A learning cycle? I don't think I called it a learning cycle. Uh, uh, a learning environment. <laughs> well, an example of. Uh, like if you think about the ways we we as a species learn um one really important thing like similar to when we're talking about leadership we can't just talk about one kind of leadership when we're talking about learning it's uh often we just talk about like we don't even talk about human learning we talk about like early childhood learning or uh, mm-hmm. adult learning or that sort of thing but um mm-hmm. But it's really helpful to understand like what are principles of learning. So how do how does a tree learn? How does a whale learn? How does a fish learn? How does a human learn? Mm. Um, and like we could talk endlessly about this, but like uh, um, that's okay. I mean, maybe <laughs> I mean we are limited for time, but we're not limited for curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, but I guess like uh, where that was really important. Um, for me in that early um, the the early introduction to this uh, this field was um, really just this massive zooming out uh, mm-hmm. where uh, in my life experience I had been very uh, yeah concerned about like uh, learning to be an artist or to be a better feminist, uh, learning what it means to be a better ally in social justice circles, that kind of thing, all of which are vitally important. Um, But I had never considered sort of like how 
our shared species history would lead to the way that we convene today, you know, um, or that, uh, like we ended up uh, reading a book uh, in that first year called um, Damned Nations by Samantha Nutt. Um, she's a, a doctor who, uh, among other things, was a, a co-founder of War Child Canada, which intervenes on behalf of children in areas of conflict. And she does such a great job in that book of outlining the, the, the dire challenges faced by cultures and societies that are in conflict um, and the utter failure of the humanitarian sector in, in meeting those challenges and, uh, and in fact, in often cases, aggravating them. Uh, so, like, I'm reading this book that outlines some of the worst situations that humans are facing in the world. And meanwhile, I'm making a play uh, called Eavesdrop, the coffee shop show that tours to different coffee shops throughout Calgary, um, which is a great show. I'm really proud of that show. Uh, mm. But I was in the middle of rewriting it, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm writing a play uh, in with all, like, white people for rich white people in Calgary coffee shops. Uh, and meanwhile, there's all this suffering happening everywhere in the world. Like what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Um, and so it caused this whole existential question around like, should I even be an artist? Like, uh, is this actually a useful way of being in the world or should I just say, fuck it? Uh, I'm going to go into politics. I'm going to, go work for war child. Like I uh, do something that actually has meaning in the world. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and rather than just sort of freak out and toss everything out, I was like, okay, I've invested a lot into this art thing. How, what does art actually do in the world? What, what is the function of this thing that I'm doing? And really tried to look at, uh, patterns of art making, like, uh, outside of, my cultural context or outside of this time period and recognize like, and, and it was really helpful to both uh, reaffirm that, Oh yeah, art matters. Like art can make a difference in the world. Um, and it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> like sometimes there's this uh, sense that like within arts communities, like we are the truth tellers. We are the, you know, the people that can, uh, remove the shroud from society's eyes or mm. whatever. And yeah, we can, but so can a whole bunch of other people. So it was helpful for me to recognize like, oh yeah, artists matter mm. and artists are part of a broader cultural context. So mm. cool. If that's the case, uh, I have all the skills, all the networks, all the experience I've been developing in this field. Yeah. I'm not going to be a medical doctor going out into uh, war zones, but what can I do from my positioning as an artist? Anyway, yeah. I rambled for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did you how did you reconcile that tension of 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 the uh, maybe minuscule or or um, the minutia of kind of creating a play in Calgary at the same time as you know what's worse than this? Literally kids are dying, right? Like how did you over time reconcile that tension where you're still an artist, right? You still do swallow bicycle theater and, and at the same time, the, uh, you're still involved with human um, venture leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and and maybe it's something that you're doing right now. Like you're still reconciling that you're still figuring it out and that's cool too. But I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, where you at with that? Yeah, I'm still, I'm very much still figuring it out. I mean, if you look at the, the, if I look at my life uh, from a, you know, zoomed out position, I'm like, what are you doing, man? Cause like I am, yeah, working with the, I'm the artistic director of this indie theater company, which is more than a full-time job unto itself. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing the Energy Futures Lab, and I'm on the board for the Center for Newcomers, and I'm working with the Asian Heritage Foundation, and mm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I can clearly tell that I'm flailing. You know, what what drives that? Like, where does this come from? Where does this desire to participate in all these different communities and and uh, groupings of people and passions? Why do you do that? I think it goes. I think I said it. Like, so much in the world is shitty. Uh, and, and so much in the world is great. Mm. Uh, and like I'm positioned in a very, very fortunate place where, uh, I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, um, to a relatively well-off family. Um, frankly, wealthy compared to most of the world. Uh, I am embodied in the way I am. And so I, I have a positionality that other people don't. Um, so I'm like, okay, cool. What am I going to do with that? Uh, and so working with a bunch of these different groups is recognizing that refugees, immigrants, uh, even just people of color in general in Canada have it all like a much more difficult situation than I do. Uh, so it's like, cool, what can we do to, to, to make, <laughs> make things less shitty for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and for all of us, because uh, none of us are, are immune from those dynamics. And then, um, but all of it is like, I think as I'm swirling around, it's trying to figure out, uh, cool, I'm learning all of these things about human and cultural development through human venture leadership. Um, so how do we make art that is more helpful than harmful? How do we build immigration systems that are more helpful than harmful. And, and I don't have answers for those things, but that's, I think what I'm, why I'm trying to get, like when I have the opportunity to dip into energy systems or systems of migration, or uh, I even did like this weird financial literacy play a few years ago. So like economic systems, it's, it's all this, like it's research. It's, uh, Mm. it's sort of an opportunity to see like, how are you making sense of the world? How is this system making sense of the world? And, yeah. and what would it take for us to shift those in ways that are, I don't know, more adaptive? Hmm. So if we, if we take the metaphor of this being research, right? Um, it, it might be interesting for, for like, ironically, an observation is that the word research is a visual metaphor. Yeah. It's to find again. Hmm. Right to observe and to find again, to research, um, or maybe even kinesthetic searching is, is it a physical activity? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, but who is this research for? So like, um, with, I, I guess I'm asking because I don't know much about w- how you hang out with human venture leadership. So, yeah. so, you know, th- th- in how you observe the world and in the plays that you produce uh, and the various uh, volunteerism and not that you enact in the world, um, engage in, in the world. Um, do you bring it back to a community where you like, kind of 
you know, play together and talk about the world and see how you could co-construct something different? Or is this kind of, you know, more or less stay with you? Or is it funneled through your art to produce a different kind of transformative culture? Like, how does this all relate to it, you know, itself? <laughs> Short answer, I don't know, working on it. Uh, but nice. longer answer... Um, yeah, the human venture community is, um, it's a bunch of folks who, who give a shit. Um, Mm. and, um, and there's lots of communities of folks who give a shit. Uh, so this is just one of many, but I think what is unique about this group is that, uh, it takes sort of a meta framing approach. Uh, so what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we all exist in frameworks, uh, frameworks of academia, of gender, of culture, of religion, of, you know, you name it. There's all these frameworks uh, that that help shape the way that we see the world and engage with one another. Um, and so to make sense, of, like what, historically how we've made sense of those things is either like when two very distinct frameworks run into each other, uh, often that has been resolved with homicidal conflicts um you know whether we it's religious wars or cultural wars or so on uh colonization genocide like that's often how we have resolved different frameworks Hmm. uh when we haven't resorted to to homicidal conflict often um you know, postmodernism led us into these system, like these uh, frameworks of, of cultural relativism, which is sort of saying your framework is as valid and as good as mine. We're all going to get along. We're all going to try to sort of like uh, be tolerant of one another and and get along, which, hey, better than killing each other, but also uh, runs into problems when when there's frameworks that are disconnected from reality, like frankly, most of our economic systems today are not connected to the way the world actually works. And so the human venture community uh, takes a meta-framing approach to try to, like, you know, meta, we're a framework for frameworks to, like, under, to try to understand how do these different frameworks develop? How does capitalism develop? How does, you know, you name it. Hmm. Where do these systems come from? And how would we actually know if, if this this way of being uh, in the world is uh, is helping the, the group that adheres to it move in a direction that is helpful or yeah. harmful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how, does, how, do you, how do you do that with that community? Are these uh, conversations? Are these um, coffee chats? Are these publications that, you know, you produce with, with each other? Like, how, how does it look for you to come together or not to... Uh, I I might be putting words in your mouth. A, come up with the truths, right, about the world, mm-hmm. um, and and work to create a different world based off of these observations, right? Mm-hmm. So h- how does that look in practice? Um, looks like a lot of things, but um, well, I guess it's. Uh, it's not dissimilar to any other field of exploration where there needs to be pioneering work uh, and pioneer is a bit of a fraught term, but like uh, going into new territory and 
looking around. <laughs> so uh, that's part of what like I'm trying to do in all these different engagements is just like look around. And mm. but then there's also the process of like capturing that somehow like writing it down so we go through uh we what we call mapping processes uh not dissimilar to like mapping a shoreline or mapping uh you know a mountain range but Mm -hmm. we're trying to map human dynamics uh and they're quite literally maps on pages you know (laughs) like uh maps on learning uh maps on leadership maps on cultural pooling on you know you name it, uh, mm-hmm. and and those literally exist in a big ass binder and online, and uh, and so as a community, what we're always trying to do is, um, a like uh, these maps are hard to understand because <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, new ways of looking at the ways human develop humans develop and learn. Mm-hmm. So for Ken's been doing this for 50, 60 years. I've been doing it for seven. Uh, so there's a lot of like trying to interpret those maps and test them to see like, okay, uh, what's been proposed here is that humans have genetically coded in-group, out-group dynamics, and uh, that will lead to certain behaviors. Uh, so it's like, cool, is that true? <laughs> like, how would I know? Um, and then parallel to that testing is uh, trying to recognize, like any map is incomplete, right? It's just a representation of a territory. Yeah. So there's it's Alfred like, Krzybski, if I feel. Alfred Krzybski, the map is not the territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and also like Cécine Pas and Peep, which was that French painting uh, of a pipe that says this is not a pipe underwear, underneath, which people are like, what? It is a pipe. But no, it's a representation of a pipe, right? Is that, so is that, is that what that's about? <laughs> the pipe thing? Yeah. It's probably about a lot of other things, but it was, uh, oh God, now we're going to illustrate my utter ignorance of art history, my understanding I, of it. I, I just clearly demonstrated that for our listeners <laughs> on my end, so we, we could share that. Um, but yeah, I, I never knew that. Hey? Yeah, I think it was because uh, if, oh my God, this could be totally wrong, but like there was the whole movement into realism in in visual art and in, in painting and uh, was trying to get like as real as possible and then mm-hmm. this guy comes along and is like makes this very you know a, a a very realistic real seeming painting of a pipe and he's like this is not a pipe and people are like what are you talking about no like shit mind blown like actually <laughs> well right? so so continuing with ignorance because i'm leading with ignorance here i know very little but is that is that the dada movement was that connected I- to that do not know. <laughs> Good. Okay. Okay. Don't we're parking. We're totally parking this conversation for another next decade, maybe when we learn more. Um, but uh, okay. So there, there's a mapping process, and that's really cool. Um, why is that cool? So in design thinking, so where where I work, we use design thinking um, to open up creativity, to open up innovative practices, to help people work quicker and more agile and more um, collaborative ways together to solve complex problems in the world, right? And mapping is just, there's something about that activity that really, I feel, gets people out of their heads pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it's like a structural way of zooming out. Hey, does that, does that connect with... Well, the zooming out is so important um, because, you know, like there's there's good maps and there's bad maps. Uh, 
well, and, and it's not even that binary, but like maps that do a better job of describing the territory than others. If you're trying, like in Calgary, if you're trying to drive from my house to where you are, sort of thing, uh, there are A, maps that tell me how to do that and maps that don't. Like if we got a weather map of Calgary, that would not tell me how to get to your place. Right. A, a road map or a path map would, but then that road map could actually be incorrect, right? It might give me the wrong route uh, to your place. And um, and so to to draw a map that uh, that is never going to be the territory, but that is a like helpful and accurate representation of that territory, zooming out is absolutely necessary. Uh, but simultaneously zooming in, like uh, it's it's we need to be both accurate about where my house is and where your house is and, and what those situations like locally are like, but we also have to zoom out to like, how does one get from my house to your house? Um, and if you zoom that out to like, uh, if we're trying to map um, how humans behave, it's kind of like uh, my mentor Ken often uses this metaphor of like, how would a snowflake come to understand itself? Uh, we're now assigning, you know, uh, consciousness to this uh, snowflake. But, uh, but yeah, if you're if it's a snowflake that's falling down, how would it understand itself? Would it look at itself? Well, you'd under the snowflake could understand something about snowflakes by looking at itself. But of course, to understand something about how, like what what is the snowflakeness of snowflakes, it would have to look at a whole bunch of other snowflakes. Uh, and in fact, you couldn't even stop there. The snowflake would also have to look at water and ice and vapor uh, would have to understand the processes that are behind the transformation between states would also need to understand something about the the broader ecological systems that that snowflake is part of you know um, I mean so so would it need to do any of those things when I mean you started off saying that you're anthropomorphizing Something that's inanimate, right? That yeah. word is annoying to pronounce. I gotta say, um, <laughs> but um, like it feels like there's like an attribution to the snowflake of the way in which we understood our. Um, it, it's kind of like we're exporting our epistemological processes onto the snowflake, mm-hmm. right? So, so we create distinctions through language, right? Discernment uh, distinctions through language, which is like a like a meta level above uh, tactile sense, yeah. right? So we we move from tactile survival, survival, right, um, into communal understandings of things through through you know a step above gestures um, and grunts uh, into the linguistic systems and i don't know if a snowflake needs anything but to be a snowflake to understand what a snowflake is i don't know if that's even like relevant to what you're saying i could just be an asshole here like <laughs> being an asshole contrarian i don't know but it just came to me you know that, that like i guess it depends on what you're trying to do like exactly if, yeah, yeah. Uh, if it's just a matter of uh and now i'll stop anthropomorphizing the snowflake and just say me trying to understand a snowflake uh, I can I can actually come to understand a lot about that snowflake simply by closely examining that snowflake, but I won't know anything about snow. You know, I won't know anything about, uh, or I'll know very little, and and frankly, probably some 
misleading things about snow and water and vapor and and the processes of which that snowflake is a part if I'm only looking at that one snowflake. Right. Which when we get to human learning ecology, uh, the snowflake is now an individual human, right? And and a lot of the time, frankly, uh, if we look around, we're assessing like making claims about universal truths of humanity by simply looking at the sample size of one. Like my experience of the world is blank and therefore right. that is how the world is. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, I can learn a lot about, I can learn a lot about me by looking at me and I can learn a little bit about humanity by looking at me. But if I wanted to understand more about like humans as a group and I would need to look a lot beyond me. Hmm. And it's interesting, like, uh, on your point about language, like, absolutely, it's a, language is a mapping system unto itself. Like, we we are assigned, like, we're approximating reality by giving different parts of reality words. But, like, did you see the, the, the news recently that the kilogram has been redefined? I have seen the news. I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> it's so exciting. Like, uh, and I don't, Again, we're getting into Cecina and Peep. Like, I'm talking about shit I don't understand. But um, Nice. Me too. But what me I too. Did, this is good. <laughs> we're like, so excited about that is, like, the kilogram is something we made up. We sort of, yes. we have 10 digits, and so we count things in measures of 10, and yeah. uh, the kilogram and is... Base 5 is also easy for us. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're real good at base, base 5. five. We're real yeah, good yeah. at base 10, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so kilogram is sort of our way of saying we're demarcating this mass as a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's so exciting about the redefinition of it is that they, um, they were measured like before just recently, we like as a species were measuring the kilogram against this piece of metal in a vault in France. Uh, that was like the measure of a kilogram and every, like yeah. different countries would have uh, theirs that occasionally would come and get checked against the the France one. Um, but that's so like, you know, like even just you think about that for a few seconds, you're like, what if someone drops it? What if it gathers dust? Like what if there's uh, a, an atomic process that is changing its mass slowly over time? Mm -hmm. um, and so now uh, using what we as a species have learned about the universal laws of physics, of quantum physics, of... Uh, of the way of, of things that are true, whether we're very small, I mean, very large. Can we say universal for now? <laughs> yes. Provisionally universal. Provisionally, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> that science works, right? It's like we have figured out like pretty much this is right until something comes in to say, mm. Oh, that's not right. So, but like, yeah, uh, what's so exciting is now the kilogram, which is this arbitrary human denomination. Construction is now linked to um, universal patterns. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, if we were to encounter another alien species, they wouldn't use the kilogram, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they have left their planet, if they've traveled uh, through the cosmos in some way, what they ha will have done is figured out some kind of measurement and some kind of universal measurement because you aren't able to actually like break through the gravity or you know anyway talking about shit i don't know uh but where i get real excited is like the kilogram is a map of an actual phenomenon and what what just happened recently is 
the community that is like working together to learn more about the way the world works has said, oh, that wasn't a good enough map. We actually need to make that map better so that we can explore this territory more thoroughly. Hmm. I feel it. <laughs> I got uh, real psyched about the whole kilogram thing. I, I don't think I don't think I uh, felt as psyched as you do. Um, I didn't give it enough space to realize how maybe monumental that is. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Your energy is infectious. I just want to feel. <laughs> I want to like climb on my roof and tell everybody about this new kilogram. Um, right? Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. People need to know. The world needs to know. Kilograms. I, really, I honestly like. I'm sort of joking, but I kind of want to do a play about the kilogram. I think. Oh man, this could go so many cool ways. <laughs> like, I'm serious. This can go so many cool ways. Just like throw in some philosophy of science there. Oh man. Hell yeah. It'll clean. It'll be clean. Good fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as as we're unfortunately coming up on uh, a few minutes left here. Yeah. Uh, together in this conversation. Um, I got to know you a lot better <laughs> like from the that. very beginning. Um, and I'm curious, so for folks that are passionate about coming together with others to create a better life, create a better world, what's important, what's the takeaway for them? What's something that's actionable that they can do, whether it's from your improv communities, uh, your theater communities or human venture leadership, you know, zooming out, like what, what can people do differently in the world to create a better one? Mm. Um, you know how, uh, like I, I, uh, don't, have a lot of kids in my life but uh little kids often have this tendency to ask why endlessly uh and there's even comedy sketches about how how you can endlessly go down this this path of why but that's so useful to ask that question why and then really follow the thread you know because uh we have all sorts of ways of of answering why that are informed by our cultural context, our religion, our, our education, our social structures, whatever, but to really pull on that thread to say, cool, like, I think this is why, how would I check that? And then once I hit, in, hit another wall of inquiry, ask another why, like, why have I hit a wall of inquiry? Um, because, like, Sorry, go ahead. No, it. I mean, I, again, uh, unsolicited reflection. Here we go. It it feels my, my unsolicited reflection. Um, it feels like um, what what I'm really appreciating about how you think and go about this life, at least in this you know auditory conversation <laughs> reflection, is there's there's a deep. Uh, uh, there's a taking serious of epistemology, right? How do we know what we know? Why is that important? That would be axiology, whatever. But <laughs> the epistemological process of, of, of really breaking that down and asking yourself the important questions of what is it we want to know? How do we find that out? How do we check that against our other reference points and, and kind of, 
internalizing this process and refining it over time as you go along, right? I feel like that's that's the invitation for people is is learn to ask good questions. Absolutely. But how the fuck do people do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm really good. Okay, so like uh, uh, often um, I'm so puzzled by by climate change deniers, um, and uh, and I have engaged in lots of conversations with lots of folks who don't think climate change is a real thing, or if it is a real thing that it's not caused by humans. Uh, and uh, and a, a cheat, like a shortcut for me is to think about like, who would know this? Uh, who would like, who who has already thought deeply about this? Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, in that situation, you might immediately go to climate scientists, uh, glaciologists, uh, anyone who's been studying weather patterns over time. Uh, but you can also go to like, insurance companies uh private militias uh like the the groups that are um whose business like capitalist business practice relies on them having some understanding of where world events are going you know um and so uh so in that sort of quest for why like again because you can just sort of have self-referential why like uh, why am I behaving this way? Because I'm a good person. Why am I a good person? Mm -hmm. it's a circular reasoning, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, but if, you, like, a shortcut is to be like, who is someone that is not me <laughs> that that would have some reliable information on this? And then, how do I pay attention? How do I test what they're saying? But then, how do I use that as a springboard to knowing something else? And I'll I'll add one. Mm. How can I recruit these kinds of conversations into my life? Yeah. Right. That's a biggie. Huge. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, I think, uh, yeah, my human venture community is uh, sort of, a, I have many, I'm very fortunate to have many people that will have many deep conversations, um, but the, the folks within the human venture community are, if they've stuck around for long enough to, uh, to, to dig into the way that we're looking at things are super willing to dig into the muck and to, to test um, the way we see the world. So I'm very fortunate to have them. That's beautiful. I'm glad that you have that community. Um, and may the work that you're doing with this community continue to do good. <laughs> I hope so too. The, the last question, uh, two, two questions before we end, before we end. One is it's, a staple is who are you becoming? <laughs> I have listened to past podcasts, so I, I was like, oh God, he's going to ask me that. <laughs> like, I hope he forgets. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I'm trying to become a good ancestor. Um, and I, I have no intention of having children. Uh, mm. So not an ancestor in the literal sense, but an ancestor in terms of, you know, I have a very brief moment, as we all do, we have brief moments on this planet engaging in this world and, um, and the way culture works, the way we learn beyond the individual level is like individuals contributing is, uh, individuals using this brief moment in time that we have on the planet to, to learn things and, add this new learning to the pool that other people will draw upon later, you know? Um, 
so that's my hope is to to be a good ancestor in the sense that I have added to the pool of knowledge in ways that people who are not yet alive uh, or people that are are quite disconnected from me will eventually be able to dip into that pool of knowledge and and access something that I helped figure out or helped clarify that will help them. I love that so much. <laughs> I, I, it, 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 well, something about it goes beyond words. It just really hits home. I don't know. Yeah. Aww. Last, last thing is, uh, where can people find you? Probably on the internet would be the best nice, way. Nice. <laughs> uh, I'm eminently Googleable, uh, although there is a Mark Hopkins hotel in San Francisco, so maybe not. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, probably the main ways to to hear more about my work would be at humanventure.com, which is the uh, the online home of human venture leadership, yeah. uh, and swallowabicycle.com, which is the online home for, for Swallow Bicycle Theater. Solid. It's been a blast, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for this wide-ranging, and I don't even remember everything we talked about, so this good, was fun. Good, good. That, that, we passed the test. <laughs> the Let's Develop podcast is co-created by Chris Raymond, executive producer, Marlo Zano, producer and digital editor, and yours truly, Artisoyan's host and producer. Music by Chris Raymond, digital content by Emily Scollin, Special thanks to Brittany Fraser, Jan Wooden, Saeed Raju, and the Eastside Institute. You can find out more about the Eastside Institute at eastsideinstitute.org.